Welcome to Off The Record. I'm your host, Marika Day, dietitian, nutritionist, recovering perfectionist, and founder of Fueled by Marika Day. Join me here each week as we delve into what it really means to be a healthy and happy human. You'll hear from conversations with experts in their fields to raw and real chats about aspects of health and life that we really don't hear enough about. You'll be left feeling inspired, educated, and empowered to be the best version of you. So sit back, relax, or head on out for your walk, and let's dive on in. Welcome back to another episode of Off The Record. So excited this week to be joined by the incredible Dr. Priya Alexander. We met a couple of months ago down, um, or up, sorry, I should say, in the Gold Coast at an AIA Vitality event, and uh, I fell in love with her. I'm, I'm going to be honest. And she has a very similar approach to uh, health and medicine, I guess, to what my approach is. So I just had to have her on the podcast. Her passion is for preventative medicine and lifestyle medicine. So um, very similar sort of interests and passions to me. And today I am joined by her to talk all things PCOS. Now I'm going to give you a little warning. There was a slight microphone issue with Priya's microphone. It uh, appears to have been rubbing on her jumper. So I apologize in advance. There is a few little scruffs um, in the audio throughout it. So bear with us. Enjoy the app. We are so thrilled to have you on the podcast today. And I feel like we've already been speaking for about 15 minutes, which we this is true. Totally should have recorded. This is true. So welcome. And um, yeah, we're very happy to have you here. And we're going to be talking about PCOS today. Very excited. Thank you, Marika. This is one of my, I would say, passion topics. So if I go on and on, please feel free to cut me off. <laughs> well, we'll try and cover as much as we can in the next 45, 50 minutes. Um, what I wanted to start with though, is just, I guess the basics of PCOS. So I think it's a term mm -hmm. that a lot of people are coming to terms with, I guess, and you know, we're, we're hearing it a lot more, whether it be through social media or whether it be through sort of mainstream media. Um, but what actually is it and who gets it? Very good question. I feel like the name probably needs to be changed because people tend to focus on the ovary component of it, but it's actually way more complex than that. So when you say to me, PCOS, I immediately think as a doctor, insulin resistance, because that is the key underlying feature of PCOS. It's the insulin resistance that drives a lot of the stuff that patients present with. So yes, it is to do with the ovaries because the ovaries get impacted by the insulin resistance. You get higher levels of testosterone, reduced amounts of this stuff called sex hormone binding globulin. I won't get too technical. People are going to switch off. But basically you get less mopping up of testosterone and that's why some people will get excessive hair growth, lip hairs, chin hairs, nipple hairs. That's also why some people get acne. So to answer the question, what is PCOS? It's really kind of a metabolic problem. It is insulin resistance that's the problem. Yes, the ovaries involved, but gosh, it's not all about the ovaries. And really anyone can get it. If you've got a uterus and ovaries, you are susceptible to PCOS. Some people like Aboriginal Australians are at higher risk, um, but you know it is quite a common condition. Yeah. So you mentioned before that insulin resistance is, I think, the thing that you said that was driving it or the thing that as a doctor you're most um, interested in and concerned mm. about. So does that mean that if you have the polycystic ovaries um, but you don't have the insulin resistance, what would you say, like, is that still in your mind something that would be, you know, classified as 
PCOS? So this is the thing, and let's be really clear about this. So I can diagnose PCOS without even doing a pelvic ultrasound and looking at your ovaries, okay? So if someone comes to me, it's called the Rotterdam Criteria. It's how we diagnose PCOS. And if people are listening going, where can I find out about this? Jean Hales, okay? The Jean Hales Foundation is absolutely amazing for this really clear, concise information. But there are diagnostic criteria. So if you, Marika, come to me into my consulting room and go, Priya, I have really infrequent periods. My cycles are kind of 41 days. Sometimes I don't have a period for two months. I'm going to ask you about 60 billion questions because that's what I do. But I'm going to be hunting going, you know, there are lots of things that can cause cycle irregularity, but the most common by far in women of reproductive age is PCOS. And the things I'm going to ask you is, have you noticed, Marika, anything like excessive hair growth? Um, Have you noticed any acne, chest, back, skin? Um, And that's where I'm kind of trying to explore if it's PCOS. Now, if you meet the criteria, long period cycles, plus you've got excessive hair growth, guess what? I'm not going to do an ultrasound. So the reason I'm telling you that is that I don't need the ultrasound to diagnose the PCOS, but some people, if you didn't ultrasound on me today, there's there's a possibility that I have got the appearance of polycystic ovaries, but I don't have PCOS. So you can have the appearance on ultrasound without meeting all the criteria of the syndrome. Likewise, you might have completely normal ovaries on an ultrasound, but you've got the other clinical criteria. So does that make sense? People kind of believe you need to have the ovarian pathology and you don't. And whilst we're on this, Marika, and I told you that I can keep going, but I love it. it's not actually cysts. In the ovary people. I was about, yeah. that was my next thing I was about to say is that, that was the thing that shocked me most when I sort of learned more about PCOS many years ago is that I thought it was always these cysts on your ovaries, mm. but it's not, it's the follicles, is that yes. right? Or the premature follicles? Yeah. So people go to me, Priya, what am I going to do with those cysts? Are they going to rupture or am I going to need them removed? And I'm like, they're not actually fluid filled cysts that everyone envisions. It's actually, you've got lots of follicles happening in the ovaries. So if there are diagnostic criteria, you might have more than 20 in one ovary when you should have one or two. Um, so it's actually follicles, not cysts. So that's the big, there's so many myths in this area. But one, you might have normal appearance and ultrasound. And two, there are no fluid-filled things that are going to burst. Amazing. So question then, and this is going a little bit off topic. If people, I've heard a lot of people getting these ultrasounds and finding, you know, of reproductive age, finding multiple follicles. Mm. How common is that to have, you know, 20 plus follicles and not actually have the syndrome? And why would we have so many follicles? Look, there can be varying reasons for that. But I guess the thing is, we know that um, we don't basically do pelvic ultrasounds on everybody, right? And there's a reason why we try and do rational test ordering because, Marika, if I do a pelvic ultrasound just for the fun of it on a patient and I detect 22 follicles and I go, ooh, that's meeting the criteria potentially for PCOS and start hunting and doing bloods and asking the patient stuff, I can actually do more harm than good because guess what? The patient doesn't have PCOS. They end up having blood tests. We detect something else that's incidental and I actually end up doing them more harm. So to answer your question, there are probably a lot of people roaming around with this appearance on ultrasound who don't actually qualify for the PCOS diagnosis. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that I've come across a lot in the nutrition space as well is that a lot of people are getting diagnosed with PCOS based on the polycystic ovaries from an ultrasound. And they're actually potentially, and also, sorry, irregular cycles. But from a nutrition perspective, one of the things I'm noticing is that it's probably more likely something like hypothalamic amenorrhea, where they're not actually Mm. eating enough or they're training too much or they're too stressed. Um, And it just happens that they've got the, you know, the um, 
cysts on their ovaries. So they're then falling into that criteria. And that's the thing, you know how before I was saying someone comes to me and says, you know, cycle irregularity or I'm missing periods, that the hypothalamic amenorrhea is the first, you know, that is something I've got to explore, which is, are you not getting enough in? And is that why the body's not actually, you know, having its normal menstrual cycle? So yes, PCOS is very common, but there's lots of other stuff like thyroid disorders. You know, there's other things that can cause cycle irregularity. So if you're listening to this going, oh, I've got PCOS. No, 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 We often do bloods to make sure we're not missing anything else and, and strange bloods to make sure I'm not missing, you know, really rare tumours, um, thyroid disorders, but we need to exclude everything else before we diagnose PCOS. Yes, great point. So that leads me to my next question, which is, I guess, as a doctor, what should we be expecting um, from our GPs Ooh. when we are going in with cycle irregularities or potentially you know, troubles with falling pregnant, so infertility um, concerns, when it comes to something like PCOS, is there, you know, certain tests that we should expect our GPs to be doing um, and what does that look like? So if you come to me with, and these are the types of consults I get, Priya, I think I've got PCOS, I've read about it, I think it's me. Um, Priya, I've got really long cycle lengths. Priya, I've noticed acne in adulthood, that's not normal for me. Or I've actually noticed excessive hair growth. Those are the things that tend to lead down the PCOS path. What I do, what you can expect is a very thorough history. Okay. And I'm talking about, I'm going to ask you about your cycles, what happened when your menstrual periods first started around 13, 14 or younger now. Um, you know, I'm going to ask about your acne, was it hormonal? I'm going to ask about family history. I'm going to ask you about your family history of type 2 diabetes. If you've had a pregnancy before, gestational diabetes, because we know, so I've just said to you PCOS before insulin resistance is the key thing and people with PCOS are at higher risk of type 2 diabetes and gestational diabetes and so that's why I'm, I'm inquiring about all of that. So good history, bloods and we test for things like your hormone levels, FSH, LH, um, prolactin levels to make sure you've not got a, a little tumour that's usually benign secreting stuff that's stopping your periods. Um, thyroid, things like 17-hydroxyprogesterone sounds really strange, but just excluding really rare tumours. And if you go to Jean Howells as a GP, there are these beautiful tools that tell us the things you need to exclude before you label someone with PCOS. Um, Pending that, I might do a pelvic ultrasound, I might not. And that's a discussion on, guess what, you meet the criteria already, we don't need it. Some patients go, I really want it, that's fine, we have a discussion about that. Some patients, I go, you know, you've got the cycle irregularity, the bloods and the testosterone and the other stuff I've tested looks okay. Let's see if the ultrasound looks like PCOS and do you meet the criteria then? And then that's the kind of workup and then you can expect usually a single or a double appointment. Usually with me, I use a double to then go, okay, let's talk about PCOS. You meet the criteria. Let's do this together because it can be complex when it comes to management, which I'm sure we'll get to. I I think we just need to replicate you and have a thousand million GPs that do exactly what you do it would be intense it would be intense Marika oh my goodness I'm just thinking I'm a pretty pretty full-on in there but yes no I I'm passionate I'm passionate Um, no, that's great. And I think that provides everyone with a bit of a clear idea of, you know, t- what they should expect in terms of level of care from their GPs as well, because GPs are so busy and run down mm. and overworked that, you know, it is easy to fall through the cracks sometimes with your GP. So yeah, I think it is worthwhile, you know, if you feel like that you're not being heard to, you know, reach out for a second opinion um, and, and yes. to go see somebody else. 
And I think you need to find the right vibe. Absolutely. So I say to patients, you know, it's, I still haven't found the right GP for me. Honestly, I moved house, I haven't found one in my area. I've got a high standard, obviously, because I, I know what I want. I want to be treated like a patient, not like a doctor. But also I know when I feel comfortable and safe to go, this is what I'm worried about, this is what's happening with my kids. Um, you need to get the juju right. Shop around. Agree. Don't feel guilty. And I'm going to extend that to probably every healthcare professional, but in particular psychology Ooh. and also dietitians. So if you go and see a dietitian yes. and you just don't feel the vibe is there, you can leave. <laughs> you can. And I think people go to me, they're like, I'm here because I just wanted to, to touch base. I haven't told my other GP and I'm like, it's okay. Yeah. You know, some patients say to me, I don't think you're the GP for me, Priya. I'm not offended. I'm like, you need to crack out there and find that person for you. Don't, we're not crying in our room if you don't come. Don't worry. Like, be empowered. Go and find the right. You should feel comfortable, safe, unjudged. I say to patients, you should leave my room without any questions. Yes. Yeah. Without the need to Google. You should feel empowered leaving my room. So find that person. Go on, friends. Explore. <laughs> explore the world. <laughs> so my next question with PCOS then is, does it go away? Like, can you, I guess, cure it or treat it to a point where you are no longer just hit my microphone, um, no longer, uh, I guess, fitting that criteria anymore? Look, you can definitely manage it, but you need, we need to remember here it's much like type 2 diabetes where there's underlying insulin resistance. So the underlying pathology is still there, but you can 100% manage it, okay? And you can manage it to the point where, you know, with someone like yourself, I have a lot of patients with PCOS who are seeing um, amazing dietitians who work on low GI foods, combating the insulin resistance, um, if it's required some healthy, sustainable weight loss through lifestyle change, maybe 5 to 10% of body weight. And, yes, with that I have seen patients go, guess what, Priya, my acne is better, my hair growth is better, I've had return of my cycle. So 100% you can manage it with lifestyle intervention. Absolutely. And I guess that brings me back to a probably prior question that we should have sort of touched on is what is the goal with treatment? Like is it? achieving Ooh. cycle cycle regularity or is it achieving a certain level of blood workup? It's not really achieving blood workup. The, the goal depends on the mm. patient. That's a good question. So if I think about all my patients with PCOS, which I have many, for some it's fertility, Priya, I want to get pregnant. For some it is um, cycle control. And, and a lot of people don't realise this, but if you have really irregular cycles, and you've got, um, you know, maybe three periods a year, maybe two, maybe none with PCOS, you're at a higher risk of endometrial cancer. So people don't realise that. So you've got your uterus, you've got the beautiful lining on the inside where if you're pregnant, that's where it would go and nestle in and implant. That's the lining that sheds every month when you have a period. But that is at higher risk of cancer if you're not having regular bleeds. So for some patients, the goal of management is we need to protect the endometrial lining with the pill or an intrauterine device, some form of progesterone, whatever it is, um, to reduce your risk of cancer. And sometimes that's the goal. Sometimes the goal is managing skin. Sometimes the goal is prayer, I want to feel better and move some healthy weight loss um, so that I can feel better, exercise more and get return of cycle. So it depends on the patient. The other thing is, though, Marika, these patients with PCOS are at higher risk of things like depression and anxiety. And so sometimes I'm seeing someone for mental health and then we go down the PCOS path. And in my patients with PCOS, yes, I'm monitoring your sugars because you're at high risk of diabetes. I'm, I'm monitoring your cholesterol, but I'm also checking in on your mental health. 
because it's a huge part of the peak loss management. Yeah, and that was actually one of the questions that was submitted through our field community is around the mm. anxiety and PCOS. Yeah. And something that, again, I've sort of seen pop up quite a lot and particularly in the research as well is this um, body image and PCOS yes. as well. Um, and I guess my question here is what is like what's the chicken or the egg is it that PCOS is contributing to anxiety and depression or is anxiety and depression contributing to um, PCOS well I will say from my point of view it's that the PCOS and the things that it brings with it like hirsutism or excessive hair growth the acne um, the difficulties with weight that often come with PCOS uh, the fertility issues that sometimes let's be clear sometimes come with PCOS that's what tends to drive the mental health factors. So I think we need to appreciate that people with PCOS are living with often a myriad of symptoms that can be really quite um, confronting, that can impact the way you feel, how sexy you feel, how confident you feel. Um, You know, excessive hair growth can really impact patients and that's why I often talk about um, things like the pill or anti-androgen therapy to try and manage those symptoms so that we can help mood and brain and body confidence as well. But yes, the relationship between body image, mood, PCOS is a really complex one. There's so much to manage. Like, can you imagine the things I'm thinking about in the clinic with my patients? But, Your brain is just a beautiful you know, machine. To, yes, it is. But I always try and go when I do a GP management plan because patients with PCOS qualify for that so they can see a dietitian, an exercise physiologist in a subsidised um, form or psychology when I'm doing it, I always make sure that mood, um, mental health is a big part of it because you can tend to get, as a GP, really focused on, oh, lower the risk of endometrial cancer. Oh, we're talking about fertility. Oh, we want to do the physical activity, the low GI foods, um, the lifestyle change that we know helps that underlying insulin resistance. But I try not to forget about the brain because it's just so important as well. And unless you ask, you often don't hear about it. Uh, absolutely. And I think it's something that we sort of can just sit and suffer in silence um, quite easily Mm. and not sort of make a point of it, particularly when there is, you know, something, I was going to say more clinical, that's very um, mental health (laughs) stigmatising of me to say that because it is very clinical. No, but I know what you mean, yeah. Um, No, I know exactly what you mean. But, yes, you tend to focus on the the cancer and the diabetes, but actually someone is struggling with significant anxiety and low mood um, because of their underlying condition. So, yeah, no, I know what you mean. So I try and make a real effort of how are you going, how's the mood. In my patients who, who a lot of them do have concurrent anxiety or depression and PCOS, um, it's, it's really about attributing equal amounts of energy and time to both. That's amazing. Because it can be, it can be really easy to just focus on one or the other. But going, no, whole patient care, we've got a couple of things to combat here and we need to just have a consult for the brain next yeah, time. that's so good. Mm. So when it comes to fertility and PCOS, what mm. I know you've mentioned a couple of times that it's not necessary that it means that you're infertile or that you're going to struggle with pregnancy. Um, and I believe the research shows, and you might be able to correct me on this, is that most women with PCOS do end up falling pregnant if they choose to within, I can't remember what the time period is. But why why is it that we talk about fertility in pregnant, sorry, fertility in PCOS? Um, and what is the impact that PCOS has on fertility? Well, first of all, PCOS, yes, fertility can be an issue. It's not always. So let's be really clear, like you just said. I have plenty of patients who have um, polycystic ovarian syndrome who do conceive without any intervention at all. But you can imagine if you've got very 
irregular cycles, okay, so you have a period twice a year with PCOS, it can be very hard to conceive because when on earth are you throwing an egg from that ovary and when can the sperm come and meet the egg? And it's only two chances so in be, a year as opposed to 12 yeah, chances in a year. Correct. And for some patients, they're having no periods, they're not even ovulating. So there's not really, there's no chance. And so for those patients where, if I've got a patient who comes to me with underlying PCOS and very irregular cycles, I always offer early fertility assistance. And we do all the lifestyle stuff. Sometimes we use medications like metformin. Um, but we do all the lifestyle stuff. We can combat the underlying insulin resistance. I very often get a dietitian involved if patients can, um, if, it's, if it's financially possible. Um, but I involve someone early because it just means that we have an additional safety net there. And sometimes all patients need is something called ovulation induction, which is medication to just stimulate the ovaries to pop off an egg. Sometimes all patients need is medication to address the underlying insulin resistance. So the metformin I mentioned before can be quite powerful in that area. That's an oral medication we normally use in type 2 diabetes. Um, but for some patients, for some, they might need extra layers of fertility assistance, but it's not everybody. Mm. And often my patients will just have ovulation induction and have a very good result. And is there any risks then during pregnancy for somebody who has um, been diagnosed with PCOS? Is there any increased risks mm. of you know, gestational diabetes? Or Yes, big, big increased risk of gestational diabetes. So patients with PCOS... So if you've, you're my patient with PCOS and you get pregnant, Marika, I'm going to do an earlier diabetes test on you. And I'm going to go, Marika, I know it's a pain in your bottom, but we really need to send you for an oral glucose tolerance test because you want to know if you've got diabetes. You're at higher risk if you've got PCOS and you're pregnant. You want to know about it because if you've got diabetes in pregnancy, we know that good control leads to improved outcomes for both mum and baby. So poorly controlled sugars and diabetes in pregnancy, you've got really significant risk of congenital defects in the baby. And so we want to manage stuff, pick it up and manage it. So I would do an oral glucose tolerance test on you soon after we confirm the pregnancy. And then we do it again at the kind of the 20 week mark and beyond when we'd normally do it. But yes, you're at higher risk and you're at higher risk of type 2 diabetes for the rest of your life, high risk of heart disease, stroke. And that's why we manage stuff and check cholesterol, check sugars really, really frequently and blood pressure. Yeah. And on that note, so one of the things, I'm just trying to compare it, I guess, a bit to type 2 diabetes here is one of the things I always hear with type 2 diabetes is that people are either blaming themselves for the diagnosis mm. or getting blamed for the diagnosis. So, you know, I didn't eat healthy and that's why I got diabetes. Is and of, Sorry, I should state this. This is obviously not true. This is not, you know, you don't cause these yes, things on yourself. Correct. Um, but how can we, I guess, address this for people with PCOS? Is there, can you confirm to us that this is not something that they have done to, you know, cause the PCOS? No, it's really, really complex. So there are often genetic factors, there are metabolic factors, there are some lifestyle factors, there are family history, there are ethnicity factors. It is extremely complex. We know that some ethnicities are at higher risk of things like diabetes, but also PCOS. So it tells you how complex this stuff is. It's nothing you've done. And I agree with you. I see this all the time. Oh, I shouldn't have been having that chocolate or the, um, the ice cream after dinner. And I'm like, yes, you should have because you've got to live and you've got to enjoy yourself. And food is about so much more than just nutrition. It gives you joy and comfort and makes you feel a bit better and it's celebration stuff. So, yes, you should have. You haven't caused this. But, hey, let's see if we can, in managing your um, PCOS or type 2 diabetes, 
up the good stuff like the rainbows and maybe do the sometimes food sometimes, a bit more sometimes to manage stuff a bit better. But no, you haven't caused anything. Absolutely yeah, not. I think we, some people think that because lifestyle interventions are such a big part of treatment in things like type 2 diabetes yes. or in PCOS is that they think, well, therefore it must be that my poor lifestyle has caused it. And it's not necessarily true. Like you said, like there's so many factors no. that play into it. Yes, of course, lifestyle, you know, is increases your risk, you know, depending on what the type of lifestyle you're living, whether it's smoking and drinking and Correct. not eating fruits and vegetables, that does increase risk of, you know, many types of health Some conditions. Yep. Um, but it is so like multifactorial. There's so many moving yes. pieces that you can't just sit down and blame yourself. And what does that actually like, how does that help you by blaming yourself and shaming yourself? Achieve. I agree. I agree. But do you know, with a lot of chronic health diagnoses, things like uh, PCOS type 2 diabetes, but lots of things, um, I often involve psychologists if possible. So the GP management plan I was talking about before, you know, you can't access subsidised psychology through that dietitian, exercise, physiology, whatever it is you need, whatever your goals are of therapy. But Psychology is often really powerful in this space to address that, Marika, exactly what you've said, that guilt, unpack the diagnosis. Um, people often feel really weighed down by it. And so I say this is something we, we can actually address head on. Can I, whilst we're myth-busting, because that's what I feel like we're doing at the moment, um, you know a lot of patients will go on the pill, um, the combined oral contraceptive pill at, let's say, you know, 16, I think that's when I went on. I had really painful periods, um, used to impact my life. I'd miss school. So I went on the pill to suppress cycle. Worked beautifully for me. Works for beautifully for a lot of patients who are safe to take it and if they want to take it. What can happen though, Marika, is people go on the pill at 16, works a treat, does what it's meant to, then patients come off it at, let's say, 25, 26, maybe later when they're, when they're trying to conceive um, or they want to break off it. And suddenly they stop the pill and they go, whoa. I have not had a period for three months or four months and I've had only two periods in last year and it's the pill that caused it. Now, this is the myth buster. It's not the pill that caused it. It's that you probably had underlying PCOS or you did if that's what we diagnose. But the pill was masking it or managing it. And so if you had PCOS at 18, I would have probably popped you on the pill as we discussed it if it was safe, all the, all the normal stuff. Um, and I would have popped you on the pill to reduce your risk of endometrial cancer. And it would have managed the, the condition as it should have. So really, it's not caused anything. It's actually just managed it. And so when we remove the pill and the mask, we see what was happening underlying. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really good. And that was one of my questions I was going to ask you because I think that is such a, I guess, a, yeah, a, a myth that we sort of see around the pill is that like the pill is not obviously a cure or a treatment or anything for um, PCOS, but it is can help reduce that risk of the endometrial cancer and it can help manage Correct. symptoms. So it's about finding, you know, the balance of treatment options that work for you and that help manage yeah. your symptoms and help you to live the life that, you know, you want to live and that feels best for you. Correct. Yep. And it's, and it's a multi, you know, much like anything in medicine, it's a really multi-pronged approach to PCOS. It's the lifestyle stuff. It's the diet stuff with a dietitian. It's exercise physiologist if you need it for an exercise plan. But then there's the medical aspect. There's the stuff like the pill. There's other contraception options if we need it. There's other meds, anti-androgens, diabetes meds if we need them. So it's really a multi-pronged approach. Yeah, love it. My next question is a bit of a hard one, I think. Um, and <laughs> it's around what I've sort of seen as referred to as like the lean phenotype of PCOS. Mm -hmm. And 
my question is, is one, what are your thoughts on, you know, this lean phenotype when it comes to PCOS versus the more overweight? Um, and is that then true PCOS? Does it still have the same insulin resistance behind Ooh. it? Um, the second part to that, which I can ask again, if you forget the second part to it, but is... <laughs> you know me, you know me well. No, I just know okay. myself. <laughs> um, is around like, you know, if we are doing, you know, say for example, a lot of the treatment around PCOS is around lifestyle and living a healthy lifestyle and mm. potentially losing that five to ten percent of weight if that is um, indicated. What happens if it's not, and what happens if you're doing mm. all of those things and you still yes. have PCOS? So let's be clear: anyone can have PCOS. So there is this perception in the community that PCOS equals overweight, excessive hair growth, acne, no periods. That's not true, um, and so. Anybody, you know, we know people, I think it's Victoria Beckham um, has PCOS, which people go, oh, really? Yes, you can look like anything and have um, polycystic ovarian syndrome. So you might meet the criteria with irregular cycles and excessive hair growth. You might just have the ovary ultrasound appearance and excessive hair growth and you have PCOS. Um, and so, yes, you can absolutely be any body type. The underlying pathology is the same. It's the insulin resistance that's driving the hyperandrogenism or that excessive testosterone and the menstrual irregularities if they exist. Now, you've made a very good point here, which is that in some patients, yes, some healthy weight loss might be indicated um, with dietitian support, with exercise physiology, GP support. I'm very clear on that because... Just to go on a slight tangent here, there is a slight perception sometimes, particularly on social media, that any weight loss is good, um, all weight loss is good, and that's simply not the case. And I think you and Very I know that. Very much on the that. same page. <laughs> yes. Being, you know, GP and dietitian, we see the other end of the spectrum where, where there is, you know, then significant restriction and loss of periods because of that, um, when it can become a problem for bone health, for, for renal health, all, the, all of it. Um, but... If, if weight loss is indicated, um, then it can play a very big, important role in managing PCOS, but it's not always indicated. So there are patients I've got who've got menstrual cycle irregularity and excessive hair growth who, who are doing fruit and veggies, whole grains, doing the little walk in the morning, and they've still got yeah. PCOS. And guess what? They are on the pill to reduce their risk of endometrial cancer, and there's really nothing else that we do other than checking on the mood and the sugars and the cholesterol. We're still checking all of that stuff. Um, but it just means that weight loss isn't part of the management plan. Now, there are some patients I have with PCOS who go to me, I feel really triggered by this diagnosis. I feel really, you know, the guilt, the anxiety we spoke about before. And I say, look, let's do this together. This is a chronic condition. Let's do this together. Let's not even talk about the weight loss aspect of things. Let's talk about the stuff that matters to you. Let's eat a few more rainbows. Let's do a bit of a walk. I prescribe a walk if, if they're up for it or a swim, whatever it is. And we don't even go down that path because it's sometimes just not appropriate. So it's about, you know, the patient and, and kind of what their goals are and what they're willing to accept as the management plan as well. I 100% agree with you on that. And I think that, you know, for someone who's sitting at home listening to this and is feeling overwhelmed by potentially that conversation that their GP has mm. said that, you know, you need to lose weight um, when if you've been diagnosed with PCOS and that is really either triggering you, it's leading to feeling overwhelmed, it's leaving you mm. feeling you know, the guilt or, you know, even leading to behavior change in the sense of like binging or um, whatever it might be for you is that you can still work on healthy behavior change and completely forget the goal of 
weight loss and still yes. have a really significant impact on yes. your PCOS. A hundred thousand million percent agree. <laughs> Good. Um, you know, you can absolutely, and I say this to patients all the time, Marika, like my patients with hypertension or high blood pressure or we're trying to, we've, we've noticed cholesterol, the LDLs and the triglycerides, the ones we don't really want high have gone up. I say to patients, you know, simply by adding in a 30-minute walk, maybe three times a week, um, simply by eating more rainbows, fruit and veg from a can or frozen, because guess what? They're still awesome and, and they count in your veggie intake. Simply by doing that, even if the scales don't move, which I strongly suggest you don't have unless a health prof- professional recommends it, um, you are doing good stuff for the for the hi- hypertension, for your cancer risk, for your heart disease risk, for your brain, for the PCOS, for whatever it is. The scales don't have to move for you to yield the benefit. Absolutely. And that's the conversation we should be having because people go, what's the point? Nothing's happening. And I go, well, guess what? Your weight doesn't define your health. You're having a huge impact on your health, your pay cost just by going for the walk. You're combating that underlying insulin resistance. Who gives a crap about this? Yeah, and I think that's, I guess, because one, we've been taught it with diet culture and, yes. and fat phobia and everything is that, you know, our weight is the weight, like our weight is our measurable marker of health, which is obviously yeah. so not, not true. true. But the other thing yeah. I think with that is that it's such an easy thing to do at home, weigh yourself. Whereas, you know, checking Ooh. your bloods, you can't do at home or anything like that. So no. people can, I guess, easily go, oh, well, the scales haven't moved. Therefore, I haven't moved. I haven't done anything. I yeah. haven't been successful in managing my health conditions. Whereas the reality is by, like you said, like simply going for the walk or drinking yeah. water instead of, you know, Coke yeah. or by, Yes. Having more vegetables, people are actually having a more meaningful change than seeing a scale move. Agree. And do you know that's why I sometimes give my patients a tick chart, like adult patients, I will give them. um, I'm like, here's your walking box, here's your rainbow box, Um, you know, and if it's mental health, here's your meditation box. And people tick it off and it's giving them something to do to go, guess what? I did it. I've done that thing for my health, Priya said. Now, I personally don't own scales. Okay, I've got two kids. I've got a, a daughter and a son. For my daughter in particular, and I have done a lot of, you can imagine as a GP in the kind of, like you would have, in the body image space, um, eating disorders, all of this. And I don't have scales in my house because they're unhelpful and also I don't want to perpetuate the notion that weight equals health or anything or value for my daughter. So that's why we don't have them. And I often say to patients, I have a bit of a discussion and I go, do you know what? We can get rid of them. You can put them in the shed or give them to someone else and throw them in the bin. So many of my patients go, I'm just going to only weigh myself with you, Priya, in the room. Am I going to get, because otherwise, you know, Marika, like we know, we see this in our patients and I've lived it actually, if I'm honest, in medical school, I became far too obsessed with numbers, became quite restrictive. So I think, you know, to combat that, it's, it's about going, do you know what, doing the walk, exactly what you said, if you need to put a little chart on your fridge and tick it off to give you the validation, do it, but don't focus on the numbers. Yeah, no, 100% on the same page. And I guess then coming back to the lean PCOS and yes. um, the those lifestyle behaviours, what do you do if, you know, you are doing it all and like, you, mm. you know, you are going for the walks, you are, you know, eating the vegetables and all of that. And you still feel like you are experiencing, whether it be like yeah, infertility or whether it be the symptoms, whether it be the hair or acne, whatever it is. What yep. are the next steps then, I guess? 
then it's usually medication. So if you're if you're doing everything um, and you're still having no periods, which is possible, then as long as there's nothing else going on, don't forget other things can cause this. As long as there's no thyroid issue or hypothalamic amenorrhea, any of that, then I would go, okay, how can we protect your uterine lining? So that's when I start to look at our other options. Do we need the pill? If it's fertility, that's the goal. I think we need to involve someone here for ovulation induction. So you can do it all, okay? It's like my patients with high blood pressure can do it all. Salt reduction, more rainbows, exercise, getting, you know, addressing the sleep apnea. They're doing everything, but still the high blood pressure is there. And, you know, medication is there. That's why it's there. We need it sometimes. It's not a failure. You've not failed. You are nailing it. And you should keep eating the rainbows and exercising. But sometimes... We just need more and that's okay. Yeah, and I think this is where, and this happens with so many conditions, is that we make it like a personal failing or our personal responsibility to, I guess, cure this or make it go away or to manage it appropriately. I know I'm literally like that with my mental health is that when I feel Mm. my mental health is slipping, I take it as a like, well, I haven't done the, like it's my responsibility to fix this. And the reality is I can be doing all of the things and I still need to take medication to manage it. Like it's, that's just the reality of it. And that's okay. If I actually say to patients, that is okay. And, you know, you can do everything, but things can just still tip out of balance. The brain can just have gone a little bit too far on the spectrum for the meditation and the exercise and the caffeine reduction, the sleep to pull it back. You know, I say this from experience, again, lived. Um, and, you know, I, I I just, I feel so, I, you just want to give people a hug, the community, and go, guess what? You can't fix it all. And let's be clear, the lifestyle stuff is my passion, yeah. you know, the preventative health, the lifestyle stuff. But it's not, it's not the be-all and end-all. And I prescribe a lot of stuff in an evidence-based, very careful manner once I talk to my patients and we practice shared decision-making. There's a lot of stuff, you know, because we need it. Agree. And I can't fix everything with a walk and a rainbow. And this is why I love it you so not. much is because we're so on the same page with this is that like, you know, the lifestyle is so important and making healthy, positive changes is so important for us both physically and mentally, but doesn't mean we're going to live forever and not get diseases. Like that's not. Yes, correct. <laughs> Medication correct. was invented for a reason. Correct. And you can still contract COVID and influenza and you can still um, have anxiety. Absolutely. It's not the be all and end all. And maybe that's where the wellness industry has perhaps swung too far Mm. the other way. Like on social media, you're saying people manage everything with diet or everything with meditation or whatever. Um, And that's just simply not the case. It's not a failure if you meditate every day and do everything, but still need some um, you know, SSRI, the drug class for, for anxiety, that's not a failure at all. Mm. And I think it then removes such a layer of shame by taking that away, by going, well, I'm not personally responsible for fixing this myself. So therefore you actually end up feeling better because you're, mm. I guess, more mentally free and free of that shame cloud of I did this to myself and I therefore need to fix it. And I mean, I don't really know what impact that has then on your physical health, but I know the impact that, you know, shame around fat phobia and weight bias has on our physical health. So I can only imagine that there would be similar things around shaming and um, that the The guilt guilt, um, to our, our health in all aspects. Yes. And I think if you're, if you actually address that aspect of it, then you're more likely to engage in a management plan in a very meaningful way. 
you know, when you go, oh, well, it's not all my fault, but guess what? I, the numbers might not move, but it's having an impact on my PCOS or whatever it is. I think patients are more likely to throw themselves in um, and, and go for it and go, pre. yeah, I'm ready to do this and engage with it in a meaningful manner. And that's when we see results, Absolutely. right? And in that, yeah. it, I guess, motivated from a place of um, wanting to what's the way I'm looking for better themselves in a non-judgmental way. So they're going, yeah. I, I want to go for the walk because I know it's good for me. Not, I feel like I have to go for the walk because Priya yeah. told me to. Yes, correct. Correct. And I think actually on that note, and we're going on real tangents yeah. here and I'm personally loving it. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite frankly enjoying myself, but you know, I think, um, Oh, I've forgotten what I was going to say then. You just the said walk. not doing it because you want you're doing to. It because, not doing it because Priya told you that you have to go on the walk. Oh, but not understanding the the, um, the the science or the reasoning behind why I'm prescribing the walk for you. Mm. I think when patients understand that, do you know what I mean? So I will say to patients, you know, for instance, my patient with um, depression yesterday, I said, you know, we know research has shown that if, if we exercise when we're depressed, it reduces the symptoms of depression. There are studies that have done this, people who don't do a walk, people who do. That's why I'm prescribing you the walk. And patients go, oh, oh, okay. So it's okay. They're more likely to do it. Not pre is, you know, whipping me out the door, telling me to go for a walk for whatever. But once you understand it, you're more likely to do it. Priya said this might make my brain feel better. Okay, I'm going to give it a crack today. So I think actually understanding the reasoning. So in PCOS, the reason I'm sending you to Marika, you know, for input as a dietitian, the reason I might be getting an exercise physiologist involved or, or, or doing the walk is to combat that insulin resistance. That's why we're going for those low GI foods. That's your domain completely. But, you know, that's why we're doing it. Because if we combat the insulin resistance, Maybe your period cycles are going to be a bit better. Maybe your hair growth will be a bit better. Maybe your acne is a bit better. Maybe you're going to feel a bit better about yourself. That's why. It's not just eat the rainbows. There's actually a, you know, there's a reasoning behind it. Yeah. And um, I'm going to add a note on that, and this is probably more my domain, but I I think the audience will like your backing up of this, I, or I think you might agree with me, um, <laughs> is that when we are talking about things like, you know, following a low GI style diet for PCOS, it doesn't mean that you can't ever have, you know, some ice cream or you, you're you a bad person if you have a bit of chocolate or something like that. It's looking at your diet as a whole and, you know, your whole week rather than looking at one meal and go overall in the whole week, was I eating relatively low GI? Yeah. Uh, uh, yes, you know, we should have a, if only we could hug right now. Um, yes, because it's, it, do you know if we've got to live? Absolutely. I say to patients, you've got to live. Unless you've got an allergy to a, to a food, okay, so you're anaphylactic to peanut or dairy, do not consume that. If you're a celiac, you cannot, which you are, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Do we disclose that? Yeah. I don't Yes, we do. Sorry. <laughs> we do. We do, yeah. Um, Marika's fans know, you know, you should not be eating gluten. But there's a higher risk of malt, this lymphoma of the gut, nutritional deficiencies. It can be really dangerous. Yeah. But for things, lifestyle interventions, where we go, it would be really nice for a low GI diet. We know it will help PCOS. I agree with you. It's like, do you know what? You're human. You should eat the ice cream and mindfully eat it and enjoy it. But ideally not every single day. But if you're having a crack most of the time, you're absolutely nailing it. But goodness me, we've all got to live. You know, live your life and food is a big part of it. If someone said to me, Priya, to manage this, you need to never enjoy. You know, I actually love my secret passion is... One of them was last night, sour straps. <laughs> it's weird. My husband brought some home and I was like, Will, 
oh gosh, you guys, I assume this packet will be gone. And it was, and I enjoyed it. And I was like, do you know what? I, I, I've enjoyed the sour straps and I don't feel one bit guilty because I'm human and I love it. And I didn't show my kids because I didn't want to <laughs> share it. It's so bad. But processed meat is another one for me. I love like a twiggy stick and I know that it increases bowel cancer risk and the WHO says it's a carcinogen. But I will occasionally enjoy it and I love it when I enjoy it. But we've got to live, Marika. You've got to live. Yeah. And it's managing your own health and your own risks then because you, you're deciding, you're coming from an educated perspective and going, okay, I know that processed meats, if I consume them very frequently, are going to increase my risk of bowel cancer. For someone with PCOS and insulin resistance, I know that if I consume a diet that's 90% sour straps, I'm <laughs> might have some issues down the track. You might, and you might be constipated. You might be constipated. Um, but it's making that decision from that informed place where you can go and make your own decisions around, okay, well, also, if you want to live a life eating only sour straps, then that's also fine. You can do that. That's also fine. Yeah, that's like- also fine. But And as I say to my patients, that's totally fine. We just need to accept that probably there'll be nutritional deficiencies, some constipation, and at some point you'll be in my door with something else. But, yeah, it's all about balance, this rigidity that we think we now see on, um, you know, people do this thing of the day on the plate. Um, Don't get me started. They yeah, so yes, you probably feel similarly. I think I've seen you post about this actually, but I say to my patients that's unrealistic and also it sets this expectation that you're going to be eating this like, you know, hashtag clean eating, which again I think is really dangerous. What is that? Is that the be all and end all? We all eat differently. That's okay. You can enjoy sometimes food sometimes and do it and enjoy it and don't feel guilty about it. You don't have to compensate for it. And when you do start compensating and ruminating on it, that's when we know other behaviours can start to set in and it can go into that realm very easily. But, you know, I ate my bag of sour straps last night and went, you know what, I'm going to enjoy this and eat it. And I don't want to ration it over three days. I just want to have it and just burn my tongue a little bit from the sourness. That's why I'm more concerned. Yes. I'm like, how, is, how are you tasting anything today? I am, don't worry, I am. But, I mean, it's it does have other implications, right? And as you put the packet in, I'm like, I feel guilty that I didn't share that with my kids. But I don't feel guilty about it. I go, I'm a human and I loved it. I loved every bloody minute of it and I'd do it again, you know, maybe in a couple of weeks' time. But, yeah, this guilt and this day-on-a-plate stuff, don't let it drive you, people, please. Listen to people who are actually qualified in this area. The dietitian and a GP, we're actually qualified and, and we're eating sour stripes. So we should be the only people informing. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> listen to only no us. That's it. Only us. That's right. No, but do listen to qualified people. I think, you know, go for reputable stuff on this, on, on matters like this. Um, we've seen, particularly on social media, a lot of people crop into this space, haven't we, Marika? With with no qualifications, you know, millions of followers or thousands of followers with nothing to actually back it up. I think you need to be careful about where you're getting particularly health advice from. Yeah, and I would even go a step further and go, is that health advice, if you're receiving it from a, like, platform where it's not individually tailored to you, so, for example, like, they're not coming to you or me to see us individually, if you are receiving that information on a broad platform, is that information relevant to you? Because it may not be relevant to you based on your lifestyle, your upbringing, your blood work, your whatever it is. Um, Even if, like say for example, even if it is about PCOS, it still may not be relevant to you even if you've got PCOS because of your certain set of conditions or your certain lifestyle. 
I've actually had this discussion um, about a year ago with a patient who used a um, influencers app to do their lifestyle shifts and basically started cooking the stuff that this person said to. They came in, checked their cholesterol because it was indicated for some other reason. I think it was a heart health check. And I was like, whoa, from the last time we did it, your LDLs are sky high, your triglycerides. I was like, what has happened? What is going on? What's that? Well, interesting. Yeah, coconut oil. And this influencer said coconut oil, all full fat um, dairy, butter, not to use olive oil. And I went, okay, 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 okay. If you watch Brooklyn Nine-Nine, it's, do you watch yeah, that, by the yeah. way? Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Oh, so cool, 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 cool. Yeah, Jake Peralta, yeah. I love it. Oh, my God. Um, so I said, okay, wait a minute. First of all, this isn't a qualified health professional. That's number one. Number two, this person is, is saying this stuff, but sure, full-fat dairy is fine, but you're actually someone who had a, pre- a previous cholesterol issue. So we would actually aim for low-fat dairy options in you because that's what the National Heart Foundation would suggest, and that's evidence-based. Coconut oil, you know, you can speak to that, but we know definitely things like extra virgin olive oil or a plant sterile enriched margarine are better for your cholesterol than than coconut oil and butter. So that was a whole, and the patient was just like, oh, hadn't clicked to them, had just been blindly following this advice, which is, which is, I don't blame them, but I think we need to say to people, stop, think, who is it that's giving you the advice and is it tailored to you? Do they know about your underlying high blood pressure? or cholesterol or previous um, issues with restrictive eating patterns? Do they know? Mm. You know, we've got to be careful here. And I think that we're going so far on a tangent now, but that's fine. Um, I think that it's okay if people do use, you know, broad platforms because not everyone can afford one-on-one care. Correct. But you do need to consider is this information, is it relevant to me? And have they considered, you know, for example, is there articles about, okay, well, if you have high cholesterol, these might be the things that are better for you than the coconut oil and the butter. Um, so as I think it's fine to yeah, look to these, maybe not influencer-led ones, maybe health professional-led ones. Yes, yeah. But um, looking to these. Look for the tailored. Yeah, look for where the, they're yeah. actually considering individual situations, even if they're not working with you individually, they're considering different people have different needs you think that would be so Correct. basic and I think that and I think that qualified health professionals will usually actually do that do you know what I mean like if, if we're giving you like I'm writing a cookbook I'm gonna say if you need nut free or you need dairy we will consider that That's a but really good point because yeah we will that's our natural tendency to go to the patient you know I don't just prescribe exercise. I go, but we know you've got knee osteoarthritis or I know that you don't feel comfortable getting in, in the pool in your bathers because of weight stigma. Um, you know, we take that into account. So look for a platform if you're going to go on the broad that's actually going to tailor it a little bit. I love that so much. Priya, I could talk mm. to you for hours. <laughs> I know, and we, we really could. You've you got to cut this off. You've got to cut this off, Marika. <laughs> Yeah, no, I will. I will. I'll um, cut this off now. But yeah, thank you so much, Priya, for jumping on and talking to us about all things PCOS and everything in between. <laughs> I know. We went on tangents. Thank you for having me. I do love chatting to you. I hope we can do it again we soon. We absolutely will do it again soon. Thank you so much. And where can we find you online? So I am the wholesome doctor on Instagram. I've got a little blog, which is the link there, and um, on Good Chef when I do some cooking. Amazing! <laughs> I'll um, put some links in the show notes to your socials and to your website as well. So if people want to jump on there, they can just go directly from the show notes. 
Perfect. Thank you so much, Priya. Thanks, Marika.